Can you turn off your virtual background just because I like to see the cat? One, two, three. Okay, that'll do. <laughs> right. John, the, the cat behind you, whichever one it is, like when we did the, you did the clap, the little head came up. And then they were like, oh, nothing's going on. I'll put my head back down again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Octothought podcast, a podcast about science fiction and SF fandom. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And this week we have letters of comment that have arrived since the previous episode. Um, And we actually have three letters of comment, a comment of comment, and a reciprocal letter of comment, sort of. So, firstly... Helena McCallum writes in to say that you can send locks if you're not called Mark or Andrew. I like this as, as an, it's a sort of meta letter of comment in that it's telling us a thing and also doing that thing at the same time. So I approve. But we had in fact already had letters of comment from Claire. Yes, that is true. Who is not called Andrew or Mark. But we had a lot of Marks and a lot of Andrews. I think there are now an equal number of letters of comment from people called Mark people called Andrew and women and that may be something we want to address at some point uh maybe we need to be diversifying our listenership we're like the board of directors of a company aren't we yeah Graham Charnock used to berate his female readers every episode about their inability to write um letters of comment to his fanzine vibrator yeah that seems I tell you what, there are some clueless people out there in the world. I think we will be coming on to that later. Um, Mark, someone called Mark, did also send us a letter of comment to keep us um, in letters of comment from people called Mark. Uh, And he says that he is most disappointed that um, we had omitted letters of comment from people called Mark. And he accuses me of having transitioned from the Mark Protection Committee to the Mark Neglection League. So I would like to publicly apologise to all Marks and to admit that I have not done a good enough job of protecting their feelings and their opinions. And I will rededicate myself to the Mark Protection Committee from this day forth. Well said. He also says that he thinks I'm wrong about the Wispers business meeting and perhaps a bare minimum business meeting uh, is the right way to go, given the state of the world at the moment and the amount of work the Conzealand committee are probably doing to make Conzealand happen. And that is a good point. Um, yes. So basically he agrees with me on that. Yes. Yay. He says, he says, Alison and Liz, I don't mean to neglect you, but you seemed pretty clear that you're holding Dr. Hugo Award finalist Mark neglecting the boy Coxon responsible here. Keep on casting. So props to you two. All of the criticism directed in my direction. Correctly. Yes. I mean, I can't say it. I can't say it's not reasonable. However, I had some vitriolic criticism directed this my way, this fortnight, from one Lillian Edwards, who accused me of, accused all three of us of not mentioning her new podcast, This Never Happens, which she is doing with Christina Lake and Ian Sorensen. And there will be a link in the show notes. It's very good. You should go and listen to it. And we are not, we are completely unapologetic about the fact that we did not mention this podcast last time because we recorded our previous um episode on the 17th of june and she released the podcast to the world on the 18th of june so we would have to have been more than usually prescient to have mentioned it so lillian 
tough. We are mentioning it now. Is that good enough? I claim my five pounds. <laughs> um, I mean, what I like about that is that you um, addressed her criticism with tact and kindness in a way that definitely won't stoke any fires. So that's good. Isn't stoking fires what it's all about? It could well be. It could well be. Um, so, and also, I think the other Mark asked us to say when we're recording it. We're recording this one on Sunday, the 5th of July, and it'll go out on Wednesday, the 8th of July. Unless it doesn't. Yes, all being well. <laughs> Unless it doesn't. Why this podcast is not late. It turns out to be easier to get podcasts out on time than fanzines, which is something I had not realised. <laughs> I mean, so I'm just going to say, and um, obviously this comes from a place of love, but I suspect it is also easier to get podcasts out when you have uh, your co-host do the editing of the podcast. On time. On time, yes. How many podcasts, how many fancies have you done, Professor the Boy Coxon? Me? A uh, few. I, pff, off the top of my head. On time. Like 20, maybe? On time. On time. I, what is time? Time is an <laughs> illusion. Fanzine's doubly so. <laughs> Time is fleeting. So Claire Claire wrote us a letter of comment. Claire Briarly uh, wrote us a letter of comment to commend us for pronouncing her surname correctly uh, and um, said she was going to be quieter this week also. So, yes, thank you, Claire. Please send your Clara Hughes on the topic of Claire Briarly um, to octothorpcast at gmail.com. Oh, no. <laughs> That's such a terrible joke. Or, in fact, any any other regular correspondent. Finally, two of us were at the first Thursday meeting on the first Thursday, and Crazy Dave told us that he listens to this podcast at two and a half times speed. So, we are curious to know whether he is the fastest podcast listener in our audience. So, if you are listening at greater than two and a half times speed, please write in and let us know. And also tell us how on earth you managed to make sense of what's going on, because I tried it and I just, I, I know what we're saying and I can't hear it, so... Whenever I listen to podcasts, I listen at normal speed, or, or sometimes 1.1, but normally normal speed, because I th- feel that podcasts are designed to entertain, and if they're not entertaining at regular speed, I'll go off and find one that is. Don't tell people that, they'll stop listening to our podcast, Alison. They can listen, to, you're very welcome to listen to this podcast. It's good, though. Imagine if you could listen to, like, rambling chats in the bar at 2.5 times speed. There would no longer be sort of, like, four hours of rambling chat over a pint. It would be, like, a breezy one-hour discussion. Yes, and you would be taking shots of vodka to replicate. (laughs) I feel that Zoom has missed a trick here. What, because it doesn't come with vodka? No, no, Zoom needs smart speed. I'm in this Zoom chat, but it's really a bit boring. Let's speed it up a bit. The details for my guff trip are all taking shape um, and I will be on it next time. So we may have to organise um, when to record in a in a way that ties in with my um, virtually f- swimming off the Great Barrier Reef or something like that. I've got lots of plans to go spend time in bars with people who are not socially don't not required to social distance though i don't know to what extent things are really back to normal in australia and new zealand i think they are more back to normal except in melbourne which is one of the main places i'm going which has had another outbreak so who knows what's going to happen and anyway so you will get my next report from not australia but virtually australia 
and I will tell you all about the exciting things I am doing there as part of the first part of reporting on a virtual guff trip. So when when does your virtual guff trip begin, Alison? Um, it starts on the 11th, which is really not very long. Um, oh, wow, less than a week. I've got, yeah, less than a week. And normally I'd be like panicking and packing at this point. But in fact, I'm actually doing all the stuff I didn't get around to earlier because as it's virtual, it's, it's easier, um, I hope, to get it all sorted. Fair enough. And um, on your, so when, so you're starting on the 11th, when does your virtual trip come to a close? Um, well, I'm, I finish with Con Zealand and then I will be not flying home. And I think that's that's the time we actually have to sort out a recording because I think I'm I'm going to not stay with Liz on my way home, and we're going to not rec- uh, we're going to record Octothorpe as if I was in Liz's living room. So that won't be the next one; it'll be the one after, I think, after Conzealand. And you'll be going, how? What was your what were your impressions of virtual Conzealand? And I'll be going, I am completely knackered and my eyes are square now. Yes, that's fair. So there will be more firm details about our um, live from Alison's trip home recording uh, in the next episode. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, shall we talk about Zealand? We, we often do, but yes, let's do it again. ha. <laughs> I, I saw a tweet several weeks ago, which I have now lost, but it was that uh, Conzealand were looking for people to help with access and specifically the issues of access, which would come up when you are a virtual convention, um, which I think is quite interesting because it feels like we're starting to get a handle on what conventions can do to make themselves more accessible to people who are actually at the convention. But obviously moving online is going to bring a whole new set of issues. And I'd be interested to know if you have any thoughts on them, if you've been to any virtual conventions or meetups which did uh, think about ways to make them more accessible to people who find it difficult um, to access virtual conventions. And any other thoughts on the matter? Well, it's funny you should say this. So the I've been doing First Thursday meetups um, for London fans. Um, when we started, we very quickly noticed that we were getting quite a lot of people attending who could not attend the first Thursday in person, sometimes for reasons of distance, um, which is not actually a primary accessibility issue for what what we think of as being a local London pub meeting. So it's nice that these people can now come, but it, it's not what I think of as the most important accessibility issue for the thing. But we also have had people visiting who cannot normally attend the meeting, either because they do not like crowded pubs or they cannot get up the stairs. And, and so that is, so having those people there is very welcome. We have then, since then, been trying to do outreach, and we've done this on a very individual basis. And we are And we've done outreach to the people who we know normally attend the first Thursday meetings, but have not been attending the Zoom meetings. We've had a range of responses. So some of them have come and tried it and some of them quite like it. Um, Some of them have tried Zoom, but concluded that they don't like large Zooms, even if we do the breakout room thing, that they are preferring their... um, even though they might quite enjoy conventions, they are preferring to do the um, interactive meetups in smaller groups. Um, some people are still struggling with the technology. People who are deaf are highly um, disenfranchised from most of this virtual 
life that we are living now. It is much worse than a regular pub meeting would be and and often also than the formal um, panels and presentations at conventions. They are finding it harder. It is harder to lip read. It is harder to manage the complexity of conversation where several people are in a room. Um, and that's about all I have on it. So some people don't like Zoom. Some people can't manage Zoom. Um, some people have disabilities that are more or differently disabling in a Zoom environment. But, you know, it's something that we've given some thought to. And actually, for a lot of the older people, just helping them individually get into this get into this way of working is the thing that's most useful. So, yeah, so, so the, the thing that popped into my head immediately was uh, the problem that you'd have if you were hard of hearing um, with this kind of technology. Um, and I think one of the reasons I, I got quite annoyed... Um, at the Hugo ceremony in Dublin because they had the automatic subtitles people were laughing when they got it wrong but the problem with that is that it means that they said oh we should not have used automatic subtitles because they were inviting people to find them funny and I kind of thought that maybe when we see automatic subtitles that are inadvertently saying the wrong things we need to shut the hell up and remember that these subtitles are there as an accessibility feature for deaf people and not laugh in a way that means that convention committees want to take that away for the deaf community so my thoughts is is that one you are quite right that if we see something on automatic subtitles we we do need to remember look these are here for purpose they are to help people and we shouldn't uh you know we should try not to react in that way because it's not helpful and that I can see that when you're doing an all online convention, there are auto subtitling options that might help. But my second thought is that for big events like the Hugos, you should really be paying for a live captioner because these problems will not happen. And we know that is possible. It's it takes money, but it doesn't take enormous, vast amounts of money that Worldcons cannot allocate to it. And that would have solved that particular problem. I think in smaller groups that is less of a problem because i think the problem with the hugos is one person finds it a bit funny and then everyone around them starts to realize what they're laughing about and that spreads so maybe that's not a problem if it's only 30 people watching live captioning of a panel or so on but i i I was slightly surprised that they used the auto subtitling option for the hugos instead of going with a person in the auditorium or else we're doing it for them that's fair i think that's a good point I I think that's less relevant to a virtual thing because the people who need automatic subtitling will use it. I also feel that laughing at automatic subtitling is the equivalent of laughing at a presenter whose first language is not English or who has a spasticity that means that they can't um, form words or move in a normal way and it's completely reprehensible and if you if all you need to do to stop it happening is to say we're having these captions to help people who have poor hearing hear the thing and I understand that some of you are finding it funny but please keep that to yourselves and people would have shut up I think I think your I can see your argument I think the Obviously, the problem is that if you laugh at someone on stage who has a um, problem speaking or problem communicating, you're clearly laughing at someone who has feelings, whereas laughing at an automatic transcription doesn't have a victim in quite the... doesn't doesn't have as obvious a victim 
and so I think it is much easier to laugh at that because it doesn't feel like you're being cruel which so I, I do I see why people might laugh at one and not the other um, but yeah and I think Liz's point about um, the Hugos especially being able to afford a, a person to do it which would not necessarily run into the same problems um, especially as award ceremonies often have a lot of text which is pre-written and can just be spewed out you don't have to live caption anything except the acceptance speeches yes and it means you can send them the names of all the finalists in advance they could have put that into the automatic transcription software too just saying uh i actually had another subsidiary point about the other thing alison said uh i was just gonna say that um obviously the first thursday mechanism of individually contacting members who are having trouble and helping them in a one-to-one setting scales poorly to worldcon levels of attendance okay here's how you do it you ask people to talk to their friends who are having trouble and you also encourage local things like the first Thursday to happen because if those things are happening in lots of different places, that is a way to, to preload lots of people. So you encourage the grassroots activity that's required. In fact, ConZealand, I think, are doing training sessions to get people familiar with their platforms before the con, which I think is a great way of doing it and that is also going to open up access so you can log in you'll be able to log in i think to their discord and things and check them out um ahead of time to make sure your chosen device is going to work nicely with everything and so you don't spend the first day of your convention trying to fiddle with zoom i guess have they announced this or have they just is this just one of these we are intending to do this stuff because i've just i finally got around to filling in my program participant form sorry jenny you had sent it to me and i am just terrible you are the bane of program you are the bane of program heads everywhere Alison. and it has a thing saying would you like to moderate a panel and i said if you if you insist because i know that although i'm not the world's best moderator there's always a shortage of female moderators and i think that it is better to have less good female moderators than better male moderators um <laughs> controversial opinion um and so, and then they said, would you be happy to, to attend a, a training session? And I was kind of like, yes, of course. But they do have to fit that training session in around my virtual guff trip. And, and so time is getting tight. Tighter than usual, I feel, for the Worldcon. There are a few things where I'm kind of like, oh, you're cutting it a bit fine now. I thought they had said this, but now I mention it. Of course, I cannot actually find any of the information on it. Or oh, did they email it to me? That might be it. It is interesting. Since we have started podcasting, I have become much more interested in conventions, official lines of communication, because that is how I try and find out what conventions are doing. And so whenever there is something I know about a convention that is not in their official line of communication, I'm like, why have you not put this on your website in a place that it is easy to find? Conventions often put quite a lot of control over their official communication routes in a way that makes it hard for say area heads to actually get in there and amend the things for their own area rapidly so you can often have area heads who are very happy to keep the information for their area up to date who are prevented from doing so by the broader controls over what goes on the website and that is not it is not a stupid thing to do there are arguments on both sides of this but my view is that if you trust somebody to be an area head, you should probably trust them to update their web page too. 
I have now found the announcement and it was in my email and it probably says something about me that I immediately tried to find it on Facebook and Twitter and their official page before I just went and read the email, which I read this afternoon. Uh, but yes, it does say that you can ask if there's a form to fill in if you would like to have some live training on Discord, which I think is a great initiative. I think it is a great initiative. I will point out that anyone who has not joined New Zealand because they feel they cannot use the technology is perhaps in need of this being announced more widely than emails to people who have joined Godzealand. I'm I'm not technically a Godzealand member. Um, I'm just on their mailing list of people who have uh, expressed interest at some point. So it maybe is going to a wider group there. Yeah, I, I, and I, yeah, and point well taken. Um, I actually, interestingly, as a Godzealand member, I did not get this email. <laughs> um, so you know, I think that all of these things make sense in, in, in terms of how Worldcon divisions are put together and they are all volunteers doing these jobs and like it all I completely see how all of this has happened but I do think at some point there needs to be a little bit of a thought about whether or not these are sensible structures and whether or not there is a better way to structure these things. I realise that as someone who is identifying this problem and not volunteering for a Worldcon not that I'm definitely part of the precipitate in this regard in that I am not part of the solution, but... Shall we talk about Hugo voting? Yeah, it hasn't started yet. I have had informal conversations with people who may not may or may not be connected with the um, people who have to actually count up the Hugos, who are like, we think the time is now getting quite tight for, for the management of the Hugo vote. So this is my question. Because I well, I agree that time is getting very tight for the Hugo voting since it is not open yet, and they are going to present them at the end of the month. Um, but also, I do not know how many people actually vote throughout the voting process, and how many people try and log in ten minutes before the end of the voting and frantically vote for everything. So I don't know whether this delay will actually be, you know, lowering the number of Hugo votes or just compressing everything into the two-week window when it would probably be compressed into anyway. This is this is my question, because when people were discussing this, I was like, I can see that having fewer votes is a problem, but it was less clear to me whether or not this would end up in there being less votes, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I completely see your point. It also prevents you from doing neat little things like having the best Hugo, best novel Hugo presented by a female astronaut and, and other tricks like this. It's quite useful to have the Hugos in the bag well before the world come. It used to be that this would have been completely impossible because the process of Hugo voting involved a voting phase and then a, uh, and then a counting phase that was long and extremely complicated. And I believe that now that we have very few postal votes, um, the counting phase is very quick. But people are still entitled to vote by post and they cannot do that. So They can. They, they can. The, the paper ballots have been up since the nominees were um, announced. It is only the online voting that is not available. Sorry that that ruins the run. In that case, ignore me. I'm talking rot, but it's still impossible because you can't actually post anything to New Zealand with any with any confidence it will arrive at the moment. So you know. Oh yeah, I, I do. I do sort of think that if you're casting a postal vote across the Pacific Ocean um, during COVID nineteen, that may not be the most reliable mechanism. But, um, yes. I like that COVID-19s is clearly like the 90, 2019 Hugos and that it's voted in, awarded in 2020. Okay. 
Tip, this is an interesting, this is an ecumenical matter. The 2020 Hugos are awarded in 2020 for works in 2019. That's right. Sorry, these things vary quite a lot. I think it's the 2019 Oscars, isn't it? I, I never know these things. Everyone does it differently. There is no consensus. It is It is quite interesting in that it is, it is clear that they will get it together, we think. But if they don't get it together, it's going to be spectacular. I think there's quite a big risk that they get it together in, in between when we record this and when the um, show is released. So well done, guys. That was, that was well timed to mess up our podcast. They have announced that voting will open no later than Wednesday, the 8th of July. So it should be open by the time this podcast is released. I'm not sure it's um, it's going to be a problem in practice because I don't think really you need a voting period that's longer than a week. Um, it'll be fine. They'll, they'll award the Hugos. Um, I, I do feel a bit sorry for the guys who have to engrave the names on the bases as well. But they're probably used to this sort of thing. But that's actually fine because all the Hugos will be being shipped around the world. And so they don't necessarily have to be ready and engraved on the day of the Hugo ceremony. The introduction of the E Pluribus Hugo, um, let's make the Hugo voting quite complicated uh, amendment also means that you absolutely have to do the whole thing digitally anyway and like have software that you've run seven or eight times to check it actually works. So I assume that when you, you just close Hugo voting and then you push a button and then 10 minutes later you have the results, but maybe that's overly optimistic. Fingers crossed. That also presumably means that the paper votes are transmitted, uh, are data entried into the digital system. I'm pretty sure. That's certainly how I would do it if I were on the Hugo, um, a group of Hugo administrators, and that is not in any way a job application, guys. Um, I've I've now listened to all the best fan casts so that I can write an article for um, for um, the Glasgow 2024. Bid is running some articles on um, on Hugo Slates, and one of them is Best Fancast, and I'm writing about it. Um, so we can talk about that next time if you like. A crossover, but I will I will be plugging this podcast there, obviously, and I I can plug Glasgow in 2024. They're going to be a great convention. We Glasgow is a wonderful place to go to for the Worldcon. You should vote for them. Does that mean I should listen to all the best fancasts at 2.5 speed? Obviously. <laughs> Yes, it does make me laugh that next episode will be the only episode we record um, other than this one before the close of voting. So we gave an hour (laughs) to Best Dramatic Presentation Log Form, and then we're going to give an hour to all other Hugo categories, which is... Yes, that's our topic for next time. All the Hugos in an hour, starting from here. Yeah. All of them. We could probably do it. We just do like a minute per category instead of a minute per finalist. Or we could have like an extra, or we could have an extra long episode where we talk about all of the categories, and people have to, and, and Crazy Dave has to run it at four point six speed. How much of our like uh, Star Wars Marvel debate did you cut out of that episode, John? Because if you think about it, I don't think the rest will be as contentious. I think we all agree. No, if you can find a topic on which we all agree we have failed in our podcast setting up arrangements the other thing we need to talk about with regard to new zealand is the colonized marginalized and historically underrepresented people inclusion initiative which liz knows about 
Uh, so Conzealand had a previous scholarship, which was for people from marginalised communities to attend Conzealand um, in person. And so it was aimed at people who were in New Zealand, Pacific, particularly those who identified as Maori, Pacifica, people of colour, um, LGBTQI or disabled. And I, I'm wondering if this is now an initiative to expand that, given that they're now an online and an online convention where you don't need to be there in person. So presumably adding people to the virtual convention um, is less of an issue because you don't have uh, limits on your venue capacity and also your your kind of marginal costs are minimal. It's just kind of expanding your online activities and making sure you have the people support for them. Um, And so they have a new membership upgrade initiative to include support the inclusion of colonised, marginalised and historically underrepresented people at WorldCon, which I think is great because that will hopefully allow a lot more people to attend virtually um, from a lot more different places, even more so than when it was actually going to be physically in uh, New Zealand. So I think this is a great initiative. It sounds like a good initiative. Um, Like, obviously, um, I think inclusion in conventions is a thing that um is really important and we've talked before about how virtual conventions can be a way to achieve that and it sounds like this initiative is kind of putting putting that into practice in a in a way which i think is really good um it's pretty exciting actually and as i've had numerous conversations with people who are unable to attend con zealand because of the cost of doing it um some of those people are marginalised or from groups that will probably be represented by this and we should put a link in the show notes and we should also let everyone know that it's happening because this might be you is there a a deadline for applying for these scholarships? Nope, they're going to say at least weekly as long as upgrades last I don't know how long upgrades last but Recently There has been a new wave of stories concerning abuse and harassment in the community and a common thread between many of these is the need to be aware of two factors. Um, Firstly, the power dynamic that can exist between more established and less established members of the community and uh, secondly, the fact that conventions are professional environments for professional members of the community and there needs to be more awareness of that. So this has been on Twitter, I think, mostly, although obviously it has bled into other discussion venues. Um, and I don't think we're going to try and link to much because it's very widely distributed and it's very difficult to keep track of. Um, but we have thoughts. I thought this was interesting because I don't have this mindset of thinking about conventions as professional spaces because for me the conventions are not professional spaces and I do have you know I do there are professional spaces that I go into that are conferences in my own field and for me they feel sufficiently different from science fiction conventions that I don't really think of conventions in that professional way and so I've been thinking about where this might give me um blind spots in particular, I think because I don't think of them as being professional events for me, I don't think of myself as really having any power in them when maybe I should. Because if I am, say, working on program convention and I have a lot of power over who does and who doesn't get slots for panels, slots for readings, slots for cafe clutches, how much am I projecting my own biases on there and kind of rewarding professional names I know and not rewarding professional names I don't know? things like that. Um, 
is what I think of as just being a hobby of setting these things up, actually something which can make a difference to maybe to the careers of quite junior people who would really like the platform that they can get at a convention to try and uh, develop their professional careers. And also in that a lot of the issues that have been talked about seem to involve interactions in convention bars. This gets us back to the, I think, well-discussed previously problem that a lot of interaction does take places in bars and in particular places with alcohol consumption, which obviously is fun for a lot of us, but may lead to uh, extra problems of how do you keep things professional if you are drinking in the bar with people who may have the power to help or hinder your career? That that seems remarkably reasonable. I, I think I want to go slightly further. Um, obviously, conventions are, for some people, a professional space. They are not, I think, primarily a professional space. Um, we, I think we would probably most say that the most, most of us would agree that the most successful conventions um, certainly the most successful larger conventions are a weird hybrid between personal and professional space in that although they were originally set up by fans as a way to spend social time and they are almost exclusively run by fans um, volunteering to do the organising, it is certainly true that professionals who are attending the convention professionally enhance the convention in many ways. And as I've just kind of started in a tiny little way, attending a convent- conventions professionally as, value- as well as personally, that I do feel that kind of strange, th- the edge of, well, I would do this, but I will not do this because it is a, it is a professional barrier from me or or here is this thing that I can I may be able to provide a professional service to a convention but is it right for me to provide a professional service to that convention while I am also a fan attending the convention um I I feel that it is not reasonable to expect everybody in a convention bar in the evening to behave as if they were at at a professional event and and you would not necessarily want that to happen I think that I've seen some calls for alcohol and bars at conventions to be um, banned or relegated. And I I do feel that that those people are missing the point, or certainly the point for me, because I am, although I do do some professional work at cons, I am primarily there to um, have fun with my mates. Um, I feel that at least one of the stories that I've read has arisen out of somebody believing that they were engaging in a professional relationship where it's quite possible that the other people involved in this primarily saw the relationship as a personal one that didn't contain a professional component. And I think there is the issue, the one where the issue of how much power as a as a and a very established writer, or indeed even as a quote big name fan, I am putting big name fan in actual scare quotes because these things do not actually exist, and and it has always been a joke. I think, except obviously it isn't a joke in some ways. So, and whether people like that do have more power than they realise. You say about big name fans being a joke, and 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 I see where you're coming from. I I don't feel. Um... I don't feel that the fact that I have been in fandom for longer than some people gives me any power, but it might be that that's because I haven't thought properly about it. What? Professor Hugo nominated Mark Protector or Neglector, um, the boy, um, major podcast editor, the coxswain, yes? 
this this neatly encapsulates the problem, which is if you asked me, are you powerful? I would probably not immediately rush to say yes. And I think that means that I haven't thought properly about it because I think I do have a... I, I am obviously acutely aware of many of my axes of privilege, um, but I think that is an axis of privilege I have not properly thought about. And I think the problem with saying, oh, you know, there's not really any such thing as a big name fad, like, I do completely understand where you're coming from, but I do wonder whether that is because we don't properly think about how those power dynamics are actually um, in effect in fandom. Um, because I think if you meet someone... I, mean, I remember the first time, you know, meeting some fans i'd only heard about you do I, I remember being scared to meet greg pickersgill like, you were right i'm not necessarily saying he is powerful uh but in some ways he definitely is he had a power over me when i was a new fan and it's also very easy for me to forget that i've been fandom for 15 years now so i'm not new anymore and i think it's doubly easy to forget that because there are people who have been in fandom a lot longer than me who think i am still new so these are all really interesting um overlapping power dynamics which are i think quite easy not to think about which is bad but you know but there are people there but there are people there are quite a lot of people at the eastercon who are not very established in their careers who believe very strongly that it's very important to be there and i've been on panels with people who i i think were very introverted writers who almost certainly write very well but who who Honestly, I think would rather have been in a bucket of of live crabs for an hour than on an Eastercon panel having to say things about things. And I did feel very sorry for these people. And, and again, who felt that that was part of professional development for a writer. Yes, I mean, what I would hope actually is that going to Eastercons and other conventions is fun. But I would like it if it didn't have that much impact on careers. Yes, I would agree with that. Because I do think it, I think it, it disadvantages the underrepresented people even further because they're not the people who may feel that they are able or feel safe in going into a convention bar and, you know, having a few pints and trying to, to schmooze with publishing professionals. Because also, as we've seen, it's those people who are uh, taking the, the bulk of the harassment in situations where it, it does go wrong and it is not all kind of nice fun and games and there are power imbalances. And and the question there is whether the harassment, or not necessarily harassment, but whether the unfortunate, some of the unfortunate outcomes arise from a situation where people who are marginalised to begin with feel that they have to go outside their comfort zone in order to gain acceptance in, in the community. And as a result, um, do things that that they probably wouldn't do if they weren't doing them for professional reasons and at that point you're into a very difficult situation very difficult situations that that you know as we know from other industries lead to terrible abuses and i think it's we should be clear that um conventions should be aware of the potential for problems and try and have good uh, codes of conduct uh, good harassment policies and things to try and mitigate against all these problems and and obviously listener services and systems so that people who are finding something is is amiss but at least one of these things that's come out the the incident may happen now and it may only be years down the line that the ramifications of that come to light 
I, I think that, that's the, the sort of thing. And, and there's only so much the conventions can do there. You know, if you're in a position of power, try not to abuse it. Try to realise that the person may be talking to you, not because they like you and think you're marvellous, but because they think you may be able to help your, their career and act accordingly. That has been the ninth episode of Octothorpe. Thank you very much for listening. And it is goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. So, before we leave you, um, we're going to talk a little bit about staying sane in the apocalypse. So, Alison, what have you been doing to stay sane in the apocalypse? The, the country seems to have decided that we all have to go out to pubs and restaurants. And I have not been doing that, but I have come to visit my parents, which is legal as of yesterday. So we're here for two nights, which I believe is allowed within the law. And obviously they are getting on. So it's quite nice to be able to come up and help them with symptoms, most of which involve operating systems. And I feel like it's back to being it's the first time I've felt that I've done anything that's felt like my normal life for months on end so that's quite nice but I still think in general I'm not that sane and we are still in an apocalypse oh and if greetings to all our American listeners who are really just kind of at the beginning of an apocalypse right now so I'm very worried for America I mean, I think we're actually in several apocalypses simultaneously, but there is one main one. But uh, personally, this week, I went to work for two days. I worked from a coffee shop one day because all the power was going off for the annual electrical check in my apartment. And I forgot about this until the air conditioning went off one morning. Um, I have also been to a bar, although all the bars here are already like table service and someone brings you your drinks. So I did not like have to go and cram up at the bar trying to retrieve my pints. They bring them to you. It's all very civilised. So it it does feel more like I am doing the normal everyday things I would do than before. But I am doing them all while wearing a mask. So that's obviously a kind of reminder of what's going on. Oh, my other thing is that... um, I happened to be reading the anthology New Sons, original speculative fiction by people of colour, but edited by Nisi Scholl. Uh, I happened to be reading that this week and it is very good. It's 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 not a themed anthology. It's just an anthology of like excellent speculative fiction. And it, it's got a very high hit rate for me. And while I was reading it, it happened to win the Locus Award for Best Anthology. So it, it, you should go out and get that. I have this day saying in the apocalypse um, by, uh, it will not surprise anyone to learn, playing board games. Um, I recently discovered the joys of print and play board games. Uh, I have found a website called docsdirect.com. You could put your beautiful game cards in the show notes, John, because they really are a thing of beauty. I was very impressed. I purchased... I purchased several 300 GSM satin prints of various board game um, print and play stuff. And I bought a corner cutter, which makes square corners round. And I got my craft knife and my, I would I was about to say cutting board, but I actually use a cardboard envelope because I am pro. And I got on with it. And now I have print and play board games to play, even more board games. Um, also went to Ikea, Ikea's still there, had to queue to get in, wasn't that bad, 
Social distancing was fine. Um, mostly very good. Well, well, Ikea's always had you go all the way around the shop on a one-way system, hasn't it? Yes. Actually, this is one of the things that really made it difficult, which is the bit immediately upon getting in was very crowded. But as soon as you got through that bit, it was all fine. Um, and the other thing is that my parents are coming to visit next week, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, they're staying in a hotel. They're not staying with us because our, ho- our, our house is small enough that it might be difficult um, to do social distancing in our house. Um, but yes, uh, looking forward to that very much. Hurrah for people. I haven't seen people in so long. I'm still not going as far as going to Ikea. Ikea can still bring stuff to me on a truck, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm, I'm only going into shops when it's absolutely essential, which means when they sell on croissants. <laughs> That's fair. No, I mean, so I would have gotten... We have been mostly getting delivery, um, I will say. Uh, the problem is that Ikea's delivery is not... Um, priced if you're just buying like a couple of odds and ends for your bathroom the delivery costs are exorbitant if we'd be getting like you know several bits of furniture i probably would have done that but i just needed like a toilet roll holder and a mirror and other things like that so so yeah oh it's a good point because ikea here will deliver minor bits and pieces for about three quid so yeah they just put them in the post i've certainly got odd things delivered from ikea without i think there was one thing we tried that they wanted to deliver for the full whack and that's the problem it's if you're bigger annoying. than whatever could go it it, it like it'll, it'll be your towel rail or something yeah or like it might have been the bin oh yeah bins will get you the bin might have been too big but yeah like pay was fine i wore my mask um i walked didn't didn't use public transport um so yeah it was fine i am not symptomatic um oh and i'm taking part in a university of southampton um Southampton NHS uh, COVID-19 testing pilot programme where I spit in a small vial and they tell me if I have coronavirus. They don't tell me if I have had coronavirus. They tell me if I currently have coronavirus. I think this is part of them trying to get set up for citywide um, testing and kind of instantaneous timescales or as near as you can get when you're doing this kind of thing. Um, So yeah, I'm helping. Yeah, we cannot tell you if you have had coronavirus from your saliva. We need your blood for that, John. So, so we can actually. So, a split... I can't do blood tests at home. I pass out. So, a spit test is good enough then, because an awful lot of people have been stuffing things up their noses, and and it seems like if a spit test was adequate for this, wouldn't they just have been spitting? So, there are various papers comparing the utility of uh, an azopharyngeal swab to saliva, and saliva does seem to come out quite well, but I think there's some slightly contradictory results. Um, the other problem is that I think trying to get people to swab their own noses and throats successfully at home is quite difficult because we really need to swab your nose and I think you need to like swab your tonsils without like touching the rest of your mouth, which is quite complicated, and possibly just spitting in a tube is better. I can spit in a tube successfully, but I cannot do any of the other things. And I got I got a blood test at home once, and it was like prick your prick your thumb and put blood in the thing. And I have a phobia of blood, but I was like, I could just prick my thumb. I can't. I can't. As it turns out, much easier to get the train to a different city to have the blood test than it is to do it at home for John. <laughs> I'll just come round with like a diamond pen and write blue on it for you, John, and I will charge you only twenty quid. I didn't say, like, in what time slot I would come and visit you, John. Yeah, in fact, John, if if I promise to do that, will you quarantine me for 14 days in your house? <laughs> oh, hello. Hello. Uh, why is she unhappy? 